Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. We rely on the generosity of our listeners to sustain this ministry and the message of Messianic Judaism for all nations. Please consider making a donation to Beth Emanuel by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. In the previous teaching, I asked you the question, how does the death of Yeshua of Nazareth atone for our sins 2,000 years later? Or to ask it another way, what gave the apostles the idea that the death of Messiah could atone for someone else's sin? And if you heard that teaching, uh, you will remember that I presented to you the traditional Pharisaic theology of the suffering of the righteous. In doing so, I was working from the text of an article that I co-authored with Toby Janicki for Messiah Journal 107 titled, The Suffering Tzaddik, How Does the Death of the Messiah Bring Atonement? We learned that traditional Jewish theology teaches that all human suffering, and even death itself, result from sin. According to this theology, suffering and death is not just punitive, it's not just a punishment for sin, but it also can function as a means of atonement by paying for sins in this world so that the price need not be paid in the afterlife. As our Master said, Better for a man to lose one part of his body than for his whole body to suffer in Gehenna. From this perspective, the sages referred to their sufferings as the chastisements of love. And from this perspective, the death of a man is considered to be the wages he receives for his sins, as Paul states in the axiom that he calls the law of sin and death, the wages of sin are death. But this simple black-and-white cause-and-effect measure-for-measure theology leads to inevitable theological crisis. If suffering and death are meant to punish a person and atone for a person's sins, why do the righteous and the innocent suffer and die? The answer is that their suffering must be for the sins of others. And that's the basic concept. We learned that, on this basis, the unmerited suffering of a righteous person earns favor with God. Simon Peter said, For this is a thing of grace, a graceful thing. This is a gracious thing, a a thing of favor. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. I spoke about how this theology has the potential to transform our perception of suffering, hardship, difficulty, and sorrow, and ultimately transform our lives. This is the type of thinking behind an otherwise difficult statement in Hebrews 11, which speaks of how men and women of faith from previous generations were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Hebrews 11.35. In this lesson, I want to continue to learn about atonement. And as we did in the previous lesson, I will be plowing through a lot of material with a lot of sources and quotations from rabbinic literature. I apologize for the overload. If you want the citations, the sources, and the text, I encourage you to get the article from Messiah Journal 107. It also appears in the appendices of Torah Club, Shadows of the Messiah and I hope to republish it soon in a forthcoming collection. We've already discussed the merit of the suffering of the righteous. Now let's talk some more about death. Just as a person's suffering atones for sins before the afterlife, so too does his death atone for sins. And this is just logical. 
If the wages of sin truly are death, then that means death pays for sin. For that reason, the Talmud prescribes that a man sentenced to die for a crime should pray before he goes to his execution. He should pray, May my death be an atonement for all my iniquities. The sages said, If a man repented and died, death wipes out his sin. Death atones for all sins except those of idolaters. The day of death brings atonement, and statements like this. I realize that this is not a concept one learns from church theology, and I'm not asking you to accept it. I'm just telling you what the belief was in Judaism so that we can understand the chain of thought at work in the New Testament. Briefly stated, that chain of thought proceeds like this. Number one, under the law of sin and death, man dies to pay for his own sin. Number two, but if so, why do the righteous die? Number three, If they do not die for their own sins, they must die for the sins of others. It's that simple. Almost that simple. Here's an important caveat. If a person does not commit a sin, he's still bound to die as a result of the sin committed by Adam and Eve due to the serpent's deceit. This is in keeping with with Paul's words when he says in Romans 5.12, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Yet, the innocent righteous man who dies does not personally deserve that fate. Therefore, his death tips the scales of measure for measure out of balance. In the traditional Jewish view, the scales of measure for measure can only be brought back into balance if the righteous die for the sins of others. The sages find numerous examples of the righteous dying to bring atonement for sinners. For instance, when Moses intercedes for Israel after the sin of the golden calf, he says, Forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Exodus 32.32 That's an atonement story. Moses offered to take upon himself the punishment of Israel in their place. Then there's the case of the man guilty of unintentional manslaughter who's not allowed to leave the city of refuge until when? Until after the death of the acting high priest. Why? Because the high priest's death atones for the manslaughter he committed. The Talmud points out several more incidents where the death of the righteous atoned for sinners. For example, it says, Why is the story of Miriam's death placed next to the laws of the red heifer? This is to teach you that just as the red heifer brought atonement, so does the death of the righteous bring atonement. Why is the story of Aaron's death followed by the story of the transfer of his priestly garments? This is to teach you that just as the priest's garments were meant to bring atonement, so too the death of the righteous brings atonement. And in another place in the Talmud, Rabbi Chia Bar Abba said, The sons of Aaron died on the first day of Nisan. Why is their death mentioned in connection with the day of atonement in Leviticus 16? This is to teach you that just as the day of atonement brings atonement, so too the death of the righteous brings atonement. So this theology also explains why the Yom Kippur prayers for atonement 
contain a long recitation of the 10 famous martyrdoms of 10 of the famous martyrdoms from the, from the Roman era. We are invoking the memory of the martyrs. Likewise, the high holiday liturgies invoke the merit of the sacrifice of Isaac. The Talmud says that Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac provides atonement for all future generations of his children. When Isaac consented to let Abraham slaughter him as a burnt offering, according to the Talmud, Isaac said, may my blood be an atonement for the, for the future Jewish people. So this concept of Isaac suffering on behalf of Israel comes through very clearly in the high holiday liturgies, and we could recite, we could, we could point you to numerous passages. In the book of Maccabees, brave Eleazar prays to Hashem that his death and the death of his comrades might provide purification for the people and remove punishment for the nation of Israel. Likewise, the famous second century martyr, Rabbi Ishmael, said, May I offer myself as an expiation and atonement for the children of Israel. In another Talmudic story, the Lord stops a plague against Israel when he tells the angel of death, Take a great man from among them, through whose death many sins can be atoned for. The same type of theology posits that God spared the nation of Israel by sacrificing his holy temple in place of the people. Rather than destroy the people for their sins, what did he do? He substituted the temple in their place. Likewise, he sometimes substitutes the tzaddik, the righteous person, for the whole of the nation. The rabbis say, the death of the righteous, the death of the tzaddik, the righteous person, is on the same level as the burning of the house of our God. The suffering and death of the righteous is more efficacious to atone for sin than the temple sacrifices. In the Midrash, Moses expresses concern that one day there will be no temple and Israel will be left without a source of atonement. In this Midrashic story, we imagine uh, it's imagined that Moses says to God, Will not the time come in the future when Israel shall have neither tabernacle nor temple? What will happen with them then? The Holy One, blessed be he, replied, I will then take one of their righteous men and retain him as a pledge on their behalf, in order that I may pardon all their sins. Exodus Rabbah 35.4 The apocryphal book of Enoch says that the blood of the righteous ascends directly up before the Lord. And in a, pa- in a passage from Ein Yaakov on Chagiga, it asks what sacrifices are offered on the altar of the temple in heaven. It says, uh, what sacrifice does the great, the great archangel Michael offer there? Does it enter your mind that there are bulls or sheep offered on that altar? Rather, what does he offer? The souls of the righteous. So the souls of the righteous serve on the heavenly altar as propitiating sacrifices for all of Israel. This is similar to the apostolic theology that's presented in the book of Hebrews about how the master's death applied as a sacrificial service for the temple in heaven. The souls of the righteous are offered upon the heavenly altar. And, of course, we see this in the book of Revelation where it says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they have borne. Revelation 6.9 Why are they under the altar? Because the souls of the martyrs have been splashed on the heavenly altar like the blood 
of the sacrifices. The Maharal of Prague explains, Although the Tsarik cannot be said to have sinned as an individual, he can be said to have sinned as part of the community. Jewish mysticism explains that whatever whatever befalls an individual in the nation affects the entire community on some level because all Israel is one. Every member is connected to everyone else. And, And this concept brings to mind the Master's words, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Likewise, Paul says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. The Maharal concludes, A merciful king punishes great ones who are the heads of the community. It's the worthiest part, which is tantamount to the whole. He's referring to the idea that's called the Tzadikador, the righteous one of the generation. This is a completely righteous person who becomes the shepherd and leader for a particular generation. A tzadikador, a righteous person of a generation, of the generation, arises, it's said, in every generation. And you don't want to be this guy because the tzadikador might be called upon to suffer and die for the sins of the whole generation. As it says in the Talmud, when there are righteous men in the generation, the righteous are seized by death for the sins of the generation. We can find this idea explained by Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lozado in his book, Derek Hashem. He says, As a result of this principle, suffering and pain may be imposed on a tzaddik, a righteous person, as an atonement for his entire generation. This tzaddik must then accept this suffering with love for the benefit of his generation, just as he accepts the suffering imposed upon him for his own sake. In doing so, He benefits his generation by atoning for it, and at the same time is himself elevated to a very great degree. For a tzaddik such as this is made into one of the leaders in the community of the future world. That is the community of the world to come. Okay, so this that was a quick uh, catalog of Jewish concepts behind the idea of the suffering and death of the righteous atoning for sin. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to answer the question, if you remember, we're trying to get back to answering this question, how does the death of Jesus atone for sins? What gave the apostles the idea that the death of the Messiah could atone for somebody else's sins? And I think we've answered that. From the Jewish from the point of view of Jewish theology, the Jewish theology of atonement through the suffering of the righteous, it was a very short leap to the theology of atonement through the suffering of the Messiah. It's the same idea. The concept of a Messiah who might suffer and die on behalf of the entire nation is already spelled out. It's already it's rooted in Isaiah 53, where Isaiah depicts the suffering servant of the Lord making the many righteous, bearing iniquity, offering intercession for transgressors. The servant of the Lord takes on the chastisement of the nation of Israel. He's cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, it says in Isaiah 53.8. He shall bear their iniquities, it says in 53.11. Jewish eschatology refers to this suffering Messiah as Messiah, son of Joseph. In Pesikta Rabati, the pre-incarnate Messiah, son of Joseph, voluntarily agrees to suffer on the nation's behalf 
to atone for their sins. Other rabbinic stories, medieval apocalypses, and mystical interpretations take the concept of Messiah's suffering even further, as does the Zohar. It should be pretty obvious that the apostolic theology of propitiation through Yeshua's suffering and death grew out of Jewish assumptions about the suffering and death of the righteous. Even so, the apostles taught that no one is wholly righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins, it says in Ecclesiastes 7.20, except for the Messiah who is without sin. His sinless life deserved the reward of eternal life, as the Torah says. If a person does them, he shall live by them. Leviticus 18.5 Yet, instead of living by them, he suffered and died. He died a horrid death, executed like a criminal. Moreover, he went to his death willingly. He freely offered up his life. Think about it from the apostles' theological perspective. I mean, because once you see it, you cannot unsee it. All those atonement theories that we went over in the previous lesson, all five of them, none of them even come close to what the apostles were thinking. This theology of atonement through the suffering and death of the righteous is obviously the idea behind the New Testament. If a person's own suffering and death can, in some sense, atone for one's sins and mitigate the penalty in the afterlife, and if the suffering and death of the righteous can, in some sense, apply vicariously to atone for others, then how much more so must the death of the completely righteous one, the sinless one, the Messiah, the Son, bring atonement? His suffering and death effects atonement by the principle that measure for measure, eye for eye, this man did not deserve to suffer or die. He was completely righteous, the completely righteous tzaddik of his generation and of every generation since Adam. Moreover, as the king and Messiah of Israel, Yeshua represents the whole nation of Israel. The master's resurrection exonerated him, proved his righteousness before God. The law of sin and death held no mastery over him because, as Paul says, the sting of death is sin. Therefore, the apostles confidently declared atonement and forgiveness of sins for those who submit to Yeshua's kingship and heed his teachings about repentance. The apostles understood the atoning merit of his suffering as something that applied not only to their generation, but unbounded by time itself. They called him the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. They taught that the favor he incurred through his death can apply to anyone on whom God has mercy in any generation. His death even brought atonement for the people of faith that lived before him, according to Romans 3. If so, if that's the case, well then, it can apply even to you. 2,000 years later. Here's how it works. Yeshua of Nazareth has accrued all this extra favor from Hashem through his unmerited suffering and death. The favor is called grace in your English translations of the New Testament, and he has plenty of it. He has an abundance of it, plenty to go around. 
He has all this extra favor and atonement for sin that he doesn't need. And he's already accomplished it. And he continues to accomplish it. So he can apply this atonement to your account. And he wants to bring you along with him, as he says to his disciples, that where I am, you may be also. All that he asks is that we should follow him in the paths of discipleship and sincere repentance, according to his instruction, trusting in God for the forgiveness of sins in his name. And why do we need the forgiveness of sins? Because if your sins are forgiven, if they are already atoned for, then you stand to be reckoned with the righteous when the day of the Lord comes. If your sins are forgiven and you are reckoned with the righteous, you stand to enter into the reward of the righteous. As the sages say in the Talmud, in the place where the truly repentant stand, even the completely righteous cannot stand. And that's good news for sinners. If your sins are forgiven and you are reckoned with the righteous, you will be saved from the coming wrath, which means that this is what it means to be saved, to be spared from the fires and the torments of Gehenna. And you can thank our master's suffering for that salvation. Instead of Gehenna, the forgiven will enter the reward of the righteous in Gan Eden, the the Garden of Eden, the, the place of paradise of souls, to recline at the table with Abraham. That means that your spirit is going to heaven when you die. And the reward of the righteous, then, is the resurrection of the dead. That means a physical resurrection into an immortal body like our masters, never to die again, never to suffer again. The reward of the righteous is eternal life in the world to come. And that means entrance into the new Jerusalem, the city of God. These things, this is a reward worth suffering for worth dying for, and worth living for day by day in repentance and good deeds as we await the blessed hope of his coming, the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, and the redemption of the whole world. And all of this is the purchase of suffering, a price that can only be paid in a world where suffering is a possibility. And that, I believe, is why we came into this world of concealment in the first place. I hope this teaching gives you a new perspective on Yeshua's suffering and how the death of the Messiah atones for sins. But I hope that it also gives you a new perspective on your own sufferings in general, remembering that to this you have been called because Messiah also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Take on my yoke and learn from me. And find rest for your soul